0: And now hear our second reading this morning from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. I will read verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested "...on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under the sun, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed." And astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Ezekiel 37, 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. It's a heck of a vision. It's a vision from God. A valley, dry and lifeless. Oh, there had been life there one time, a long time ago. There had been life, but all that was left now was bones, dry bones. Bones. An empty valley would seem less dead than a valley full of bones because the bones show us that life had once been there, but now it was gone. Since I was a teenager, I have always been strangely attracted to old parts of old cities, not to the gentrified historical sections with their cobblestones and stately homes. I've always been attracted to the old parts of old cities where the work was done. Factories and rail yards and shipping docks and refineries. Places where the sweat of working men and women created the wealth of the nation. Places that in so many cities now lie in ruins. If you're feeling generous... I want to give me some Philadelphia real estate. I'd rather have an abandoned factory in Kensington than a Georgian townhouse in Society Hill. There is a melancholy starkness to those derelict places that I've always found strangely attractive. The bones of buildings that were once thriving and pulsing with life, hollowed out, lifeless buildings, like dry bones in a dry valley. They make a place seem lonelier than if it were just an empty field. God gives the prophet Ezekiel a vision of a valley filled with dry bones, bones that once were the strength and the support of people busy with life. As it turns out, it's the bones of God's chosen people. It's a melancholy, lonesome sight. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. Even the bones know they're bones. Even the bones know they're dried up and without hope. That's where people land sometimes. That's where the people of God land sometimes. People get so worn out and overwhelmed. Sometimes it's been so long that there were good times that people say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. That's the beginning of the vision that God gives to Ezekiel. I've seen that vision myself. Not in the spirit, but in the flesh. That very vision of dried up hopelessness. One summer when I was in seminary, I was the guest pastor at Union Tabernacle Presbyterian Church on East Cumberland Street in Kensington, catty corner to Kensington High School where my Aunt Martha graduated. The building was at least 150 years old. The sanctuary was on the second floor, the Fellowship Hall on the street level. A congregation of about 30 would meet on Sunday mornings in the Fellowship Hall because well, because it was too much trouble to go up the steps. A beautiful, wood-paneled, gothic sanctuary with an organ and a marble pulpit and a surrounding balcony sat idle and unheeded, gathering dust. No one even bothered to clean it anymore because church hadn't happened there in years. That congregation was a valley of dry bones. Once it had been alive... Once it had been full of life and vibrant and making a difference in the neighborhood. But when I worked there, it was like a skeleton rattling around in a fat man's suit. The neighborhood outside the doors of the church was busy, full of life. But the church inside the doors was depressed and hopeless. Their energy had long ago dried up and their vision for the future was gone. I was with them for just 10 weeks. It was my baptism by fire in ministry. And maybe it was their baptism by fire too, because I came on hard and strong and loud because I was bound and determined to jolt them out of their spiritual apathy and their physical sloth. They were so tired. They had given up long ago. All they wanted was to be lulled to sleep with their familiar hymns. I swear we sang How Great Thou Art every Sunday with familiar hymns and comfortable sermons. And all I wanted to do was light a stick of dynamite under them so they'd wake up and come back to life and once again be a real church serving their neighborhood. Now I'd like to tell you that I'd turn that church around, but I didn't. Like so many PCUSA churches, Union Tabernacle kept doing what they had always been doing until they finally closed their doors. But that's just the first half of the story. This morning, if you go to the corner of East Cumberland Street there, caddy corner to Kensington High School, you will see a full and busy church. A church with lots of kids running around. A church meeting in its second floor sanctuary. A church doing ministry not only in Kensington, but also in Central America and in Africa. The neighborhood is still poor. Drugs are still a problem. In fact, the pastor who did turn that church around, who took a dying PCUSA church about to close its doors and transformed it into a thriving Assemblies of God church, bursting at its seams, was a fellow by the name of Frank Vega. Heroin, prison, suicide attempts. That was his story. I remember him saying to me, it was easier for me to stick a needle in my arm than to look at myself in the mirror. That was his story. But at some point in his life, he cried out to God for help. And when he came out of prison... He went into full-time gospel ministry. I'd be lying to you, by the way, if I told you that Frank Vega, however, was the one who breathed new life into that dying church. Because it wasn't. He was there, but it wasn't him who breathed the life into that church. And Frank, in fact, Frank was in such a bad way himself that he needed someone to breathe new life into him. Frank could no more breathe life into a dying church than one old bone can breathe life into a valley of bones. It wasn't Frank who turned that church around, but Frank had a friend. Now, I don't know that friend's name exactly, but Jesus loved to call him the helper. Sometimes Jesus called him the comforter. In fact, the Bible has 126 different names for Frank's friend, my blessing, the breath of life, the finger of God, the fullness of God, the power of the Most High, the oil of gladness, the glory of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the mighty voice, a river of living waters, the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that turned that little church around, a church so dead that you couldn't have gotten a rise out of it with cardiac shock paddles. And it is fitting that that church is now an Assemblies of God congregation. Since the Assemblies of God are known for being a charismatic, Holy Spirit, Pentecostal denomination, there is life in that church because there's the Holy Spirit in that church. Now this morning we find ourselves reading the first part of the story of the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, the day the Holy Spirit descended as tongues of fire and a mighty rushing wind, the day that a group of 120 unimpressive, unimportant, unremarkable people became the most revolutionary and powerful organization that the planet has ever seen. We've just begun our journey through the book of Acts, And as we work our way carefully through this book, it'll probably take us 18 months, where we'll see every Sunday the Holy Spirit popping off the pages of this book. And so in the months ahead, we're going to have many opportunities to learn more and more about the Holy Spirit. We Christians believe in the Trinity. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we really do neglect the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure why this is. Of all three persons of the Trinity, the one that we should be most interested in is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the conduit, the pipeline through which we receive all of the benefits of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the conduit, the pipeline through which we communicate with God the Father and God the Son. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity with which we have the most contact. And yet it seems that we think about Him the least. The Acts of the Apostles is going to set us straight. So this morning I want to offer a little crash course in pneumatology. That's what they call the theology of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. And then I want to talk about speaking in tongues. While the Acts of the Apostles is chock full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit actually makes his debut long before that. He shows up on the first page of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is active and moving in creation, in the act of creation. If you want to see something created in your life, in your community, in your church, if you want to see something created, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament word for this spirit is ruach, which means breath or wind. In the New Testament, the word is pneuma, which means the same thing. The Nicene Creed has a few things to say about the Holy Spirit. We read, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. Four quick points we see in this creed. First, the Holy Spirit is the source of life. So the difference between a person and a corpse, the difference between a cow and a carcass, is the presence of the breath of life. And that life-giving breath comes from the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean figuratively, I mean literally. The Holy Spirit not only makes things physically alive, He also makes them spiritually alive. We can be physically alive but spiritually dead. There are plenty of spiritual zombies walking around. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they are regenerated and they're given new life. They're brought back from the dead. Now what's true of individuals is also true of churches. A congregation without the Holy Spirit is dead. Spiritually dead. Oh, they may still be meeting week after week like a zombie congregation, like a church reenactment society. But without the Holy Spirit present in the church, nothing is actually happening. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. Second, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the Spirit of God, sometimes called the Spirit of Christ... This one and self-same Spirit, we affirm this Spirit is coming from both the Father and the Son. The Westminster Confession says a little more. It says that the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That the procession from the Father and the Son isn't a one-time thing that like somehow the Holy Spirit popped out but that it's an endless, ongoing reality, this procession from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Third, the Holy Spirit is God, and He is worshipped, and He is glorified, exactly as God the Father and God the Son are both worshipped and glorified. We always have to be careful to not treat the Holy Spirit as if He were somehow Less than the Father or less than Jesus, the Holy Spirit is God. And we worship Him, we pray to Him, and we glorify Him. And fourth, the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. When God speaks to His people, He does it by means of the Holy Spirit. When we read the words of the prophets, we are reading the word of God. When we say that the scriptures are inspired, we are using language of breath and of wind. Second Timothy says it best. All scripture is God-breathed, I love that phrase, and is useful in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Holy Spirit is the means by which God speaks through his prophets. The prophets are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when they're inspired, they speak the Word of God to the people of God. That's what makes them prophets. As we work our way through the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to see the Holy Spirit in action. He's going to be doing all kinds of things just to whet your appetite for what's coming up. Let me throw out a few of the things that the Holy Spirit does and then you'll understand why we can't get along without him. Here are a few. Number one, the Holy Spirit reminds us. The Holy Spirit reminds the apostles of what Jesus said during his earthly ministry. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus said to his disciples, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, keep in mind that The disciples had been with Jesus for three years. They'd listened to hundreds and hundreds of hours of teaching and sermons from Him, but they probably weren't taking notes. They probably forgot a lot of what they heard. But when they received the Holy Spirit, the disciples who then became the apostles remembered more and more fully what Jesus had taught them, which allowed them to teach others and to make new disciples and to write those things down into the Gospels and the letters that now make up the Scriptures of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit reminds us. Number two, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit shows our sin to us. He's he's a mirror. People on the highway to hell, people without the Holy Spirit, those people imagine that they're just fine, that they're pretty good, that they're not really sinners. But people who are on the narrow path to heaven, the Holy Spirit has shown them their sin. They are acutely aware of their sin. And the Holy Spirit makes them grieve their sin and long for some solution to their sin problem. Conviction of sin always comes before conversion. The Holy Spirit shows us our sin and our need for God. The Holy Spirit convicts us. Number three, the Holy Spirit draws us to Christ. Once we become aware of of our sin problem, the Holy Spirit then shows us that Christ is the answer to this problem. By the Holy Spirit, our sin looks more and more terrible to us, and Christ looks more and more sweet. To that moment when we're converted, the Holy Spirit draws us to Christ. And number four, the Holy Spirit gives us faith and converts us. The only way to fix our sin problem is to have faith in Jesus Christ. If we have faith in Christ, we receive a full pardon for our sin. We are united to Christ. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. If we have faith in Christ, we become part of the body of Christ. We're part of the family of God. But before we have faith in Christ, the Bible says that we are dead in sin and trespasses. And guess what? Dead people cannot have faith in the same way that dead people do not revive themselves. Before we can even have faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit must first regenerate us so that we have the ability to have faith. He wakes us up. He gives us the faith that we need so that we can be saved, so that we can be born again, so that we can be brought back from this spiritual grave. We don't do that. God does that for us. We are saved by faith and that faith has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say this. If you don't have faith, if you're saying to yourself, man, I don't know. I don't think I can believe all of this stuff. It seems a little crazy. You can ask for the faith. You can pray to God and say, ah, help. I'd like to have some faith. I've got some sense that something's going on with you, God. I don't know what it is. Please give me the faith that I need. That's a prayer that you can pray even before you have saving faith. And that's a prayer that God will always answer. He will give you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, all of the faith that you need. The Holy Spirit gives us faith and He converts us. All right, that's enough for today. I've only scratched the surface of what the Holy Spirit does and how He is involved in our lives. We will see more and more fully in the weeks ahead how important God's Spirit is to our lives individually and to our lives as a congregation. Alright, so can we talk about speaking in tongues now? So raise your hand if you've ever spoken in tongues or been in a church where people speak in tongues. The rest of you all need to get out some more. Okay, <laughs> all right. You need to get yourself to a church where you where you can see this. All right. Um, a little earlier, we read, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, what's this all about? Now, one of the things that Pentecostal churches are known for is so called speaking in tongues. Was the early church Pentecostal? Should we be Pentecostal? In the New Testament, there are two kinds of speaking in tongues. The first kind is intelligible. In other words, people who hear it can understand what you're saying. And the second kind is unintelligible, which means that the people who are around you while you're doing that, uh, and even the people themselves, don't know what's being said. Okay, so there's intelligible and unintelligible speaking in tongues. Now the first kind of speaking in tongues, the intelligible kind, is connected with prophecy. And by prophecy I mean speaking God's word to God's people. Today we call that preaching. The second kind of speaking in tongues, the unintelligible kind, is connected with worship. And by worship I mean God's people speaking to God. What we see in Acts chapter 2 in our reading this morning was the intelligible kind of speaking in tongues. And it was connected with prophecy, with God speaking His word through the prophets, through the preachers, to the people. On the day of Pentecost, there was this extraordinary miracle. All of a sudden, everyone in the city heard the gospel in their own language. People from all over the world were in Jerusalem that day. And everyone heard the gospel in their own language. The day of Pentecost, in some sense, was the Tower of Babel turned upside down. You remember the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, the whole world spoke one language until God confused their languages so that they would disperse throughout the world. On the day of Pentecost... Everyone heard the gospel in his own language so that people from all over the world could now be gathered together to form a new people, a new nation called the Church of Jesus Christ. On that day of Pentecost, it was as if the Holy Spirit were a universal Google translator. And the purpose of that miracle was prophetic. It was all about getting the word out as fast as possible to as many people as possible. The purpose was the crystal clear communication of the gospel to the whole world. On the day of Pentecost, everyone heard that message loud and clear in their own language. That's one kind of speaking in tongues that we see in Scripture. That's intelligible speaking in tongues, speaking in tongues in a way that people can understand what you are saying. That is speaking in tongues that is connected with prophecy or with preaching. But we don't see that particular kind of speaking in tongues repeated in the New Testament. When Paul goes to Athens or when he goes to Rome, he preaches in Greek because he knows Greek. And because all of the educated people in that city are going to know Greek. If Paul met someone who didn't know Greek or didn't know Hebrew, he would need a translator. Peter, who apparently didn't know Greek, traveled to Rome with Mark. And Mark apparently was his translator. So there was this one-time exceptional Day of Pentecost miracle of everyone hearing the gospel simultaneously in their own language. But there's another kind of speaking in tongues we find in the scriptures. And that's speaking in tongues connected with worship. And that's an unintelligible speaking in tongues. We call it glossolalia. What you find in a Pentecostal service is this kind of speaking in tongues. Now this is not God speaking to people, but it's people speaking to God. And they speak in a way that no one else around them can understand what's being said. Indeed, the speakers themselves don't understand what's being said. We have a little description of this uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth. One who speaks in tongues, one who speaks in a tongue, speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So here, Paul distinguishes speaking in tongues from prophesying or what we would call preaching. To prophesy or to preach is to build up, to encourage, to comfort the hearers. But when someone speaks in tongues, they're not speaking to other people, they're speaking to God. And apparently this kind of activity, this speaking in unknown tongues, was totally normal in the early church. As Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Speaking in tongues was not only normal, but was also approved by the apostle. And the apostle was the one who spoke in tongues most. And so we know that speaking in tongues in worship is both biblical and apostolic. And that means that if the Holy Spirit moves you to speak in tongues while in worship here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, you had better obey. And if you're worried what other people around you might think if you start babbling in some unknown language... Then you're guilty of fearing men more than you fear God. You have permission to speak in tongues in this church. And if the Holy Spirit moves you to speak in tongues in worship and you stifle that prompting because you're worried about what someone might say, then you're in the very dangerous position of sinning against the Holy Spirit, which you don't want to do. Do not quench the Spirit, is what the Scriptures command Now, while Paul approves of speaking in tongues in worship, he tells the Corinthians that preaching is better. Because while speaking in tongues builds up the worshiper, preaching builds up the whole church. Here's what Paul writes. The one who speaks in tongues builds himself up. But the one who prophesies or preaches builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Alright, just a little bit about speaking in tongues. We'll come back to that again. In the months ahead, we're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. we got a lot of ground to cover. Which is a good thing because there is no Christian life without the Holy Spirit. Because there is no church without the Holy Spirit. But let me close with just a word of warning in this post-resurrection pre-second coming chapter in the history of the people of God 100% of God's dealing with his people is through the Holy Spirit let me say that again In this post-resurrection, pre-second coming chapter in the history of the people of God. In other words, now, 100% of God's dealing with his people is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our connection, our conduit, our pipeline with God. Through the Holy Spirit, we receive from God. Through the Holy Spirit, we give and communicate to God. Through the Holy Spirit, we are connected with God. Through the Holy Spirit, we are one with Christ. And Satan, who hates you and hates God, would love nothing more than to shut down that pipeline. Don't let him do it. It is the shield of faith that quenches all the fiery darts of the devil. Take up the shield of faith and don't let the evil one cut you off from your connection with God. And it's not just Satan who is the enemy. It is also our flesh, the old man. We are our own worst enemies. And the flesh is always warring against the Spirit. Flesh that is that sloth that makes us slow to respond to the call of the Holy Spirit. The sloth that says, nah, I'm not going to go to church today. I think I'll sleep in. Flesh is the pride that makes us afraid in worship. The pride that says, I don't want anyone thinking I'm a holy roller. You may be born again, but until you see Jesus face to face, you are locked in a battle with your flesh. Get used to it. And do not quench the Spirit of God. On the day of Pentecost, when the newly birthed, Church burst out onto the streets of Jerusalem. There was amazement. But there was also opposition. There was mocking. Verse 13 said, But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Picture for a minute the joy of these Christians. Their exuberance, their childlike excitement. They had been through it all. They had been with Christ for three years and then saw Him tortured and executed and then for 40 days they had Him showing up again in His resurrected body and they were huddled there in that upper room waiting for something to happen. They didn't know what was going to come and then it happened and it was wild. And there was a godly joy about these people, a Holy Spirit exuberance and excitement, and they go out into the streets to share this with other people, and what happens? Well, some of them mock. Why do they mock? I don't know. Because they're afraid? Because they're jealous? But let's be clear. If the Holy Spirit comes over you, and you are overflowing with joy and delight in Christ, there will always be someone pulling a long face and mocking you. Sometimes even in church. But don't worry, because that's only the dead mocking the living. Rather, may we be joyful, may we be spirit-filled, may we be born-again sinners saved by grace who are so delighted by what God has done for us that we can hardly hold our tongues. As Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. And may the joy of the Lord in the Holy Spirit be our life. To the glory of God and to the salvation of His people. Amen.